millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hey there, Mark Kenny here from ANU's Australian Studies Institute with Democracy Sausage Extra, a special post-budget discussion, and we've assembled a panel of great scholars to discuss that very important document. Now, did you catch the recent Australia and the World Annual Lecture with the wonderful Indigenous leader Pat Turner? It was on at the Press Club only last week, and you can listen to it as a Democracy Sausage podcast, so so by all means, do that. But of course, don't do it before you get to the end of this podcast, because we've got so many good people here to talk about. Maria Teflaga, you were actually at the National Press Club for Pat Turner's address. It was quite a significant occasion. Yeah, I know. It was, it was a, a great energy um, in the air, and the question and answer section was wonderfully lively. It was yeah. lively because we had someone there who was forthright. She gave a, an excellent address about, um, you know, the, it was called the, uh, the cry of Indigenous peoples to be heard, uh, a defining moment for Australia. And she gave a very forthright address. And then when the question and answer session happened, she actually took the answer section pretty seriously and she gave did. answers. Yeah, she did. She gave um, honest answers. She wasn't at all, uh, I guess, trying to uh, make anyone feel comfortable or be polite about it. It was refreshing. It was, and uh, it was it was uh, it was a great honour to be at that event. And I thought it really reflected well on the Australia and the World uh, series. We had Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, there last year. Well, not at the press club, but doing this lecture last year, and uh, we invited the treasurer to lift his gaze and think about Australia and the world, as is the title, and to you know, really give some reflections on the world that we faced at the time. I say this because, of course, the world that we faced at the t- at this time last year was nothing like the world he's had to face with this budget. Uh, so everything has changed, as we know, and the, and the budget reflected that. 
Joining us from Melbourne is Professor Miranda Stewart, who is a professor of, at Melbourne University Law School. She's also a fellow of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute at the Crawford School, from where this podcast emanates twice weekly. Welcome back, Miranda. Hi, thank you. And it's welcome back also to Dr. Demography, or more formally, <laughs> Dr. Liz Allen, who is a lecturer with the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods, and of course, author of the brilliant recent book, The Future of Us, and I've spoken to you about that on this podcast as well, Liz. I think it was the demography sausage, remember? Very, very, mm. very good. That's right. We did. Yes. Uh, it was the only time in the august history of this mm. institution that uh, uh, it's uh, momentarily changed its name. What so- does that mean in culinary terms? Look, I think I think it it was some. In my mind, I see it as a stratified kind of bundle of sausage oh, yeah, with right. a variety of one of those decorative pressed meats. Yeah, yeah. no, I look. It's no. got to be robust. It's got it. Yeah, it's of no course. decoration. It's it's heavy, heavy going. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, and best cooked for quite a long time. <laughs> So, look, let's get down to this budget. Budget 2020, a projected deficit of $213 billion, $74 billion jobs and tax stimulus plan, $4 billion for an ongoing wage subsidy scheme after JobKeeper eventually sort of peters out and is is uh, is given the, the bullet. Uh, and that's to uh, to give uh, employers an incentive to employ under 30s and under 35s. Um, and there's $12.5 billion that the government says will be ploughed back into the economy uh, in, instead of Treasury coffers uh, through tax cuts that were due next year and in, uh, in 2022, in fact, and which have been brought forward to July 1 this year. Miranda, these are all pretty big numbers uh, suggesting the government's taking the situation very, very seriously. Um, were you impressed? They are big numbers. Uh, it, it, it- it was very impressive, I suppose, especially to have a coalition government preside over a budget like that, although one would have to wonder if it was a Labor government whether they would have gone so far even um, because of the poli- – I'd be interested to think about the politics of that. Um, the tax cuts were not surprising, of course. They were pre-announced and perhaps we can come back to that. The the thing that was larger than I expected was actually the business asset uh, subsidy. So we can talk about that separately. But that was larger, I think, than many people expected it would be. Well, let's go to a couple of those things. Um, first, your, your point about uh, whether a Labor government would have done this. I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it, mm. Maria? I mean... Uh, it's bold. There's a lot of money being borrowed here at, at very favourable rates. Uh, the, the government's really leaning into the idea of stimulating the economy, of getting the uh, getting employers employing again and buying equipment and so forth. And it's not worried about how that looks. Uh, but but I think Miranda's right. I think a Labor government would have had to have a much closer weather eye on the politics of it, how it would look if uh, if it didn't deliver. How it plays into plays into that sort of standard trope that you know Labor borrows a lot and spends a lot and never balances the budget. The coalition doesn't have to worry about being attacked on that flank so much. So it's a really interesting point that Miranda makes. Uh, it's a very interesting kind of counterfactual, and I guess if Labor had won office um, at the last election, the whole kind of discourse around what we would be using um, or how what levers government would be pulling would be quite different. Um, And 
whilst it's entirely conceivable that the coalition would revert to type and attack the Labor government for spending, I guess it would really depend on how effective Shorten would have been perceived to be at solving problems and rectifying, I think, what we sort of saw as the sort of malaise that Australia was in prior to the COVID um, crisis. This may have just been the opportunity he needed to sort of double down and deliver his agenda. It might have been the kind of crisis that would have allowed him to sort of say, well, see, um, you know, Labor's vision for the future that is more equitable, which has a greater involvement for the government sector, um, may have been quite deft. I mean, obviously, a lot would depend on who the opposition leader was. Well, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah but I mean, it, it's a strange circumstance. We, we normally would say in a circumstance like this, well, we don't have two worlds to compare. We've only got the one we live in. However, on this occasion, we do. We actually have the recent example of the GFC. We have the example of a Labor government that came in in 2000, late 2007 with the new Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, proudly branding himself a fiscal conservative, only to be confronted within 12 months or so uh, with the, the GFC and this very same exigency, the, the requirement to spend up big to salvage the economy. And we also have the coalition's response to that. So I think Miranda's point holds up very strongly against that model. What what do you think, Liz? Look, I from a demographic point of view, I see this budget as potentially politically strategic, but population-wise and strategic in terms of con- considering the socioeconomic future of this place, it's not strategic. I see this budget, as I said, from a demographic point of view, as as being, I guess, protecting the incumbent and making it uh, make it look like we're we're doing something, but in actual fact, there's very little substance um, in relation to the kind of demographic elements of the crisis that we're facing. Uh, being, oh, well, I think we'll come back with. to the, the mm. demographic uh, stuff because it, it is a very interesting element of this budget. Mm. But just back to you, Miranda, for a moment on this point about you know how what Labor might have done, and 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 to my point about you know what we saw in uh, 08, 09, uh, is that what was in your mind when you made that point? Yeah, that's right. Look, I think um, most people would agree, although uh, the Treasurer was uh, reluctant to agree on television last night. But uh, most people would agree that. Um, the response to the GFC, the fiscal stimulus payment, you know, uh, people may remember it was a refund of taxes or else a cash payment for a large number of households, um, that that was a successful response to the GFC. Uh, and that was also possible because, in fact, both sides of government, uh, you know, both parties over the years have been fairly averse to public debt. Uh, the coalition has that reputation more so, but Labor has also been very conservative and cautious uh, in terms of public debt, much so than, much more so than comparable countries. You know, we have a lot more private debt in private consumer debt than we do public debt. So they both have kind of came out of this position where they were in strong economic positions and could then respond to a crisis. And I guess the main thing I'm, I mean, I'm pleased that we are able in this country to have either side of the major parties respond with a fiscal package that actually does spend quite a lot of money, even though I might dispute hmm. what we're spending it on. So, so I think that's a mm. good thing. 
Yeah, well, I was just going to say before, I think the, um, uh, the, the there's no doubt the coalition had kind of won that political argument, Maria, about debt. You know, Miranda's talking about the demonization of debt there, and it was partly because that sort of coalition narrative about debt being bad uh, had, had sort of, you know, Labor had kind of run up the white flag about that, which was one of the reasons why Rudd did campaign on being a fiscal conservative, he even said, this reckless spending must stop. I remember being at the uh, the launch of Labor's campaign in 2007, and he actually undercut, he did the sort of undercut of, of John Howard. Um, so concerned was Labor to be seen to be fiscally uh, constrained in its, in its thinking. But as I say, the game changed on it quite significantly. And we saw the coalition in opposition capitalise on that a lot. And essentially the government that we see now is full of people who made their careers demonising the spending of the GFC, which mm. in hindsight looks parsimonious compared to what's had to be drawn out uh, in response to this threat. Well, I mean, as the Prime Minister himself said in Parliament yesterday, uh, I believe he said that this crisis was 45 times worse than the GFC, which I guess ex explains uh, a $1.5 trillion debt that he's racked up. I mean, I, I mean, look, you're, you're right in the sense that we're dealing with two uh, major exogenous shocks to the Australian economy, but I think it is important to sort of consider the fact that expectations going into this crisis and expectations going into the GFC, GFC sorry, um, were uh, rather different um, people um, you know, that our discussion around wages growth and slow wages growth is a product of literally the mining boom, the response to the GFT, surviving the GFC, and trying to cool down the economy, people's expectations about what wages growth should look like, are sort of reflective of a really great boom, just sort of like Whitlam's performance in the 1970s was a bit below average, but actually just within the normal range. But people's expectations from the 1960s that wages growth and inflation be so very low meant that he was truly uh, marked down for that. And so I guess that's sort of what I'm trying to um, say that, you know, on face value, I think it is perfectly fine and arguable to say that the coalition probably would be hammering Labor um, on spending. But I don't think it's actually really known whether or not Labor couldn't have done something with it, given they would have won and they didn't win. And I think that's important. On, on, a, on a platform of state expansion, on a reinvigoration of a social democratic project and this crisis um, for a deft political leader is was an opportunity or would be an opportunity to argue for that. And I think what Liz said before about the, the approach of the coalition is kind of kind of goes to that. They've spent a lot of money, but the, but you know if we ask the question, what is this budget about? Like obviously the headline one is how to restart the economy, but the the sub question to me seems to be how do we defend, restore and re-strengthen the consensus that we spent thirty years building? Yes, well that question about about the spending, not just the scale of it, but where it's directed and what that tells us is, is certainly a live one. And you were, I think, touching on that, Miranda, when you talked about uh, the instant asset write-off and incentives for employers to to hire. Um, what are your thoughts about that uh, policy in particular? Uh, do you think it will work? So there are two aspects, I guess. One is the wage subsidy, um, which is the payment for employers to hire, um, that seems like a sensible policy in the sense that we had to move, we have to move out of JobKeeper. So, uh, it does make sense to continue to 
support job hiring. Um, the, the design of it, um, one of the critiques I've heard, it, it requires a minimum of 20 hours a week for the employee. A um, couple of critiques. One is that it might not be enough money. So the 200 um, sounds reasonable, but might not be enough uh, per week per job. Another is that what an employer can do is hire two people part-time, um, which perhaps gets more people into the labour market again, um, into jobs, but doesn't give them, you know, full-time, what you might think of as longer-term full-time jobs. And so that's another potential critique of it. Um, but I guess the idea is just to get workers in. The other aspect that I was thinking of is actually the subsidy for capital investment. Hmm. Uh, so that's machines, it's not people. Um, and in fact, someone just suggested to me, uh, I wonder if that will mean that employers are more likely to revamp their capital investment in things, machines, you know, robots, if you want to put it that way, automated trucks, automated manufacturing trains, and not into jobs. Uh, and the reason I say that is that that is a, a really massive subsidy. If a business can find the cash, which may be difficult in this couple of years coming, they can get they can write off the entire cost of uh, a capital machinery asset, no matter how large and expensive, immediately, and they can carry it back. Uh, to prior profit years as well. And that's why that costs so much. It's sort of $27 billion over four years. Um, that's a really big subsidy for capital investment. And most of that, it's a huge subsidy, and most of that, it's a, it's a huge chunk out of the budget, of course. We know there's a lot of cheap money around, and we can come to that, but it, it's a serious uh, commitment uh, or, and, and a serious sort of intervention, in effect, of the state into these private businesses. Is it also a worry that a lot of that equipment will be simply imported equipment? I mean, there's a lot of talk prior to the budget about the modern manufacturing strategy and, uh, you know, this sense after the, uh, the, the weaknesses shown up in supply chains by the COVID crisis that, you know, Australia wants to be a country that makes things again and all that. But you can't imagine that whether it be buying a new ute or buying uh, a photocopier, or as you say, buying sophisticated um, uh, automated machinery in in some other manufacturing process. A lot of that's going to be coming directly from overseas. It's just imports, isn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. But I mean, we do. You know, if we did want to do manufacturing, which the government says it wants to do, we do need capital inputs into that. You know, we do want businesses to purchase those machines. I think the trouble is we've already had the ute-led recovery. Small and medium businesses have already been able to deduct upfront the cost of, of a, a utility truck. Um, so the thing about this is that it applies to much larger businesses after 5 billion turnover and massive, you, know, you can imagine massive pieces of equipment. Um, so we'll have to see how many businesses really take that up. It's much larger than, for example, Keating's investment allowance in the early 90s, which was just a kind of additional subsidy for those expenses. So does it apply to Qantas and Virgin? I would think it would, yes. Well, it's businesses up to turnover of $5 billion. Uh, I would think they come in under that. But uh, I mean, theoretically, right, this should, pr this should promote productivity. That's the idea of it. 
that's the idea. It subsidizes that capital input into productivity and presumably then that can generate more jobs, right, in relation to the utilization of that capital. Let's take a very quick break and come back and talk about um, whether what tax cuts will do, but also get into the demographic uh, projections in the budget, which are you know materially important for the future of of the economy, but also of our broader society. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Now, we were talking about asset write-offs and how that might um, uh, play out uh, in terms of productivity and what it was going to cost. Another aspect of this budget, a key aspect, is bringing forward these tax cuts. People like Ross Gittins uh, have... um, have said, yeah, you can understand why you would do it, but if you're thinking about creating jobs, tax cuts is not the best way to do it uh, because, well, obviously cautious taxpayers and who wouldn't be cautious in circumstances like we have at the moment uh, are going to be inclined where they can to put money into savings rather than plough it straight back into the economy. What's your view about that, Miranda? Well, it does give a few households between a, a few hundred and a few thousand so it, it will do that. Um, I, probably bringing for if you were going to deliver tax cuts, bringing them forward a little bit and potentially allowing people to get that this year makes sense if it's a current stimulus. Um, yeah, whether households save or spend, I'm not sure. I guess it just does get a little bit more money into into the economy. Um, you know, you could have just done cash payment, more cash payments. So I don't have such a concern with the stage two tax cut, but I'd be surprised if it does as much as predicted for economic kind of activity. Maria, it's interesting, isn't it, uh, that the stage two tax cuts have, have been brought forward like this because, as Miranda says, she doesn't have a big problem with them. Most people don't, even the opposition doesn't have a problem with them. There is, however, a lot more division over the stage three tax cuts, which, you know, give give very significant benefits to top-end income earners. It's quite telling in a way, and I think quite indicative of Scott Morrison's thinking that they didn't bring the 2024 tax cuts forward. In fact, when you think about this budget and you compare it to, say, the 2014 exercise you know, when they proudly said they were stripping $80 billion out of education and health and, and uh, you know, it was all about, you know, fiscal hairy-chestedness. 
This is not a budget that really brooks fights. It's a budget that kind of steers down the middle for the most part. There's, 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 you know, there's kind of philosophical, um, fingerprints in it, but, but, but it isn't doctrinaire in the kind of hardline conservative or neoliberal way that you might have said of that 2014 document. Are you, are you trying to say that this is an election budget, Mark? Well, <laughs> let me. Well, it, I, I might be saying that. In fact, I was reading Paul Kelly in the Australian. He began his comment piece with these words. Uh, the budget has two goals, beating a recession and winning an election. Well, I mean, I think I think the, the GFC actually taught us some good lessons about some of the problems with austerity-style spending. The specific criterion, I guess, or qualities of this um, recession would suggest that you know, cutting cutting stimulus or cutting funds from from an economy that has basically been shut down by the government would just be complete um, madness. But yeah, I think the government has gone out of its way to um, try to emphasize the fairness of it. You know, this the the middle income tax offset remains for for this year as a way of, um, I guess, uh, evening out the distribution of. Uh, effectively a cash splash across um, the community. But of course, that's a one-time thing, whereas the tax cuts for higher income earners are permanent. In, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, all the political speculation is that the election will be um, sooner rather than later in 2021 for very good reasons. Um, the that you know, essentially the economy is likely to get much worse over time, which kind of goes to some of the interesting um, and very rosy or, gla- or rose-tinted assumptions that underpin the budget that we'll be seeing 4% growth in two years' time, that there will be a vaccine that is widely available in the community. I think it's really interesting that the government like I can understand on one level why they're doing that they want to they want to promote an idea of confidence um, but it's also quite a risk really to um, put such a positive spin on events they cannot control um, and um, to assume a level of, of growth that um, you know four percent growth is is astronomically high that is much higher than we ever achieved in the global financial sorry the global the our the once in a century mining boom that we experienced i think the way ago. um just to comment on that growth point i mean the the the, the way that that might that four percent might be able to be hit is with this sort of massive dose of infrastructure spending uh and that kind of essentially that spending just directly pushes up GDP, right, because it, it immediately gets that that money, whether it's by government or in private hands, that, that physical infrastructure spending um, might might create that in the short run. It, w- it, won't pres- it won't continue at 4%, but it might create that little boost, uh, which might be what they're looking for for an election. Well, they're coming, that's right, and they're coming off a very low base, aren't they? I mean, 7% contraction in July of this year of the Australian economy. They're looking for 4.25% growth. That's what the budget papers say for, uh, for next year. Uh, that, that is pretty optimistic. It's one of a couple of optimistic, uh, assumptions underpinning this budget. The other one, of course, is around a vaccine to be found and rolled out this financial year, really. I mean, well, Liz, do you think that, Seems reasonable. I mean, there's a, getting some hope and optimism into a into a fairly depressing situation. <laughs> it, it it sounds agreeable, uh, and there is a fair bit of hope in the medical community about a vaccine coming forward. But 
what we do know, uh, which is very little about the progress of the vaccination, the, the vaccine, uh, and the, the development around that, it's not going to, to happen very quickly. Uh, and, um, we even had, um, uh, someone from the government, uh, the day before the budget come out and say that it would, it, it's going to probably happen toward the end of next year. Um, and I think, while hope is important, um, and, and I'm all for hope, we do have to be realistic. And, uh, this is going to be more of a slow burn than I think many come to realize. But the other thing. You mean the, vac- the vaccine? The, 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 the virus the itself. Virus. Yeah. yeah. The, the course that the virus takes. Um, and, um, I think that, um, We've got to be cautious in not pinning hopes in on something that uh, might alter our behaviour adversely, uh, and we do need to take action now to to ensure that what we do between now and then, um, whenever that is, is it meets the needs of of whatever the future is, and that's the that's the issue here. Is this there's so much uncertainty, and uncertainty is frightening. For so many people, and um, uh, yeah, that that worries me. That particular aspect of of the, this vaccine um, well, obviously worries the government as well, which is uh, as as um, was said before, is um, possibly eyeing an election next mm. year. Just before we go to the, as I said, really interesting population projections mm. in the budget. Uh, just back on the question of. Um, the tax cuts is one idea. Mm. Another idea being, as Miranda said, possibly cash grants to people as has been used before. Mm. And, a, and another idea might be, and this is something the government seems to balk at, doing something about the unemployment benefit structurally. Mm. At the moment, it has the, you know, the, the sort of pared down corona supplement. Mm. Um, but that, ends on the 31st of December. So happy Christmas if you happen to be unemployed. Indeed. Presumably. And the the budget doesn't say anything about this at the moment, so we don't know what the longer-term plan is. Everyone who isn't the government uh, pretty much agrees that the dole, 40 bucks a day, is unconscionably low. You and I have talked before about about the the corrosive effects of poverty, the psychological drain of it. I mean... What are your thoughts about that? Would you is that what you you would have preferred to see? I would have much, I would have much preferred to have seen investments placed in in making this place fairer, um, and and more equal. Uh, you just have to hear the stories of people who are living on income support when they say to you, and this is you know, I I totally totally can understand this, is that they go without. There are children that go without birthday presents, Christmas presents, children. There are parents that are going without meals so that they can meet the basic needs of their children. These parents, uh, these, these people, these children, are not somehow inherently uh, deficient. They are Australians and they are in the circumstances through no fault of their own. Yet we like to think that they, and listen to the words carefully, they are different to us. And so it's an easy 
thing to look away from. I think many people, uh, and we see this in surveys, uh, public opinion surveys, when we ask the general Australian population where they think that the, the government is spending most on in terms of, uh, the, the, um, uh, you know, Centrelink payments, people will say unemployment benefits. It's not true. It's age pension. Yeah. Right? So we have a skewed understanding of what it's like to live in poverty in Australia and what it takes to get out of it and what what it takes to get into it, if you like. And we are so busy demonising others and, and saying that it will never happen to us. Well, shock horror, it's happened to people that never thought it would happen to them. And do you know what? I... I have a fantastic job at the moment, but I live in fear, I'm on a contract, that that will end hmm. and I won't be renewed and I will have to go back and put my entire family through it of going back to relying on support. It's frightening because hmm. we wouldn't survive. And I hear that echo across the conversations that I have with people is that this is insufficient for basic survival. These income support payments are insufficient for basic survival. We have to correct this. We do have to correct this. And even having a situation where this corona supplement, Maria, is temporary and not knowing, here we are, here we are sitting in October, uh, knowing only that it ends in December at Christmas, that's, that uncertainty is uncertainty that we don't seem to foist on others, but the, the powerless unemployed, uh, we, we seem able to do this, I guess. We just seem blithely able to do it because the mentality is what we're giving the money. Yeah, I, I think there is a perception um, from some in the community that being on welfare is like a holiday or something like that, which is a, a really weird um, way to think about things and I think just goes to the fact that there's like a lack of experience and a, an imagination of um, what it means to be making a series of extremely stressful trade-offs all the time about uh, how to provision inadequately for your family and for your yourself. Um, and I think, I guess it kind of goes to the, the point of this budget. Like, I think there is a distinction between spending a lot of money and uh, what that money is um, spent on. And, the, you know, the treasurer made the point that this budget was about values and that he wanted a private sector-led recovery. And so he has put a lot of, um, you know, money into, um, you know, the instant asset write-off, into R&D, uh, into um, a wage subsidy um, for people to employ people on potentially, as Miranda said before, two, two people on 20-hour um, contracts. Um, the government had already signaled very heavily that they were not going to touch anything on New Start for, for two reasons. Um, one, they're not into doing structural change. They don't want to do major changes to, to welfare uh, tax transfer payments. And two, they, they basically wanted to be able to give themselves the scope to see how the economy was sort of um, travelling. But actually, this is a really good marker of priorities, of values, um, uh, of, of ideology. Uh, just because they spent a lot of money doesn't mean they haven't made choices. I mean, they've basically chosen, despite 
every single advocacy group in this country to to not invest in social infrastructure and mm. and you know we we've actually kind of seen it's a natural experiment around the world and it's a bit glib to say this and yes there'll be there'll be things that finesse this but you know countries with high social capital performed better mm. Australia still has a lot of social capital that's why we and, you know we follow rules and and we we did it for each other and 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 for all of those um, reasons or we did it for our immediate families if nothing else um, but you know we can't bank on that into the future and it's frankly cruel to ask people to spend for the economy if they don't know what they're going to be living on on January 1 which is three and a half months away. And probably a bit of a stretch to ask people to to essentially engage in a whole lot of rules and behavioural changes mm. when you don't actually have a stake in the society in which you live. You know, you don't have mm. a toehold in it. Everything you have is temporary from your housing to your welfare Mm. You know, to your position at uh, therefore at, at, at the school uh, for your kids or whatever it is. It's um, you know that that state of precariousness on multiple fronts mm. uh, is uh, is is corrosive. Is. Now let's talk about what the budget says about <laughs> demographics because this mm. is really fascinating and it does have a strong economic dimension, of course, because mm. demography has been our destiny in so many ways. What does it tell us? Well, it, we should start this by saying that what is contained in the budget papers, um, their projections, mm. their, their expectations of what the future might hold, they're not forecasts. What strikes me as a demographer about the figures that underpin the budget with regard to population is the, the massive negative net overseas migration figure. Uh, I did not expect to see that magnitude of negative uh, net overseas migration, and I think a lot of demographers would say the same. Um, so it's it's we went from last year's budget where the Ford estimates totally kind of uh, got the figures really, I, th I think they overpitched really when it came to net overseas migration and total fertility rates. Um, and what we're seeing now is that have we gone the opposite? Uh, potentially, I don't know, uh, and we won't know for some years down the track, but the data is grim does this, does this suggest that grim. the population is actually going to shrink, that migrants will return to wherever they've come from? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So think of uh, the population as a balancing equation. On one side, you have net overseas migration, which is the difference between in and out uh, at an international scale. And then on the other side, we have uh, births, uh, natural increase by way of uh, births minus deaths, right? And within that, we, we look at inputs when it comes to the total fertility rate. We are unlikely to see a total decline. And in the data shows that that's the case at, a, at the national level and at all of the states and territory level, except for Northern Territory, the population will still continue to grow. The growth rate will be uh, far much, less than much expected. Much lower than it was, and that's the point, isn't it, really? <laughs> that's because right. we've been able to rely on pretty well continuous, steady growth in our mm. population for a long time, and it's been the story of of our productivity yeah, in yeah. a lot of ways, or at least our economic growth. Yeah, not, and perhaps and not our productivity. And I think the other thing too is that we've got to be careful not to just. So we've got an expected uh, net overseas migration, a magnitude that we've not seen in Australia since 1916. Mm. 
1916, right? Yeah, World War One. It's yeah, yeah. This is this is grim stuff. Um, and so, so Maria, yes, we'll see more exits based on these estimates than than arriving in a country. And, and the budget shows that the figure for the Australian population, the expectation for Australia's population in um, the next period, mm. next two years, was to be close to 27 million and it's yes. in fact now predicting it will be closer a million less effectively, close to 20. Just over a million less. Right. So so what this means is that these are people we'll never get back. It, it, it's uh, We won't see a, you know, a whole chunk of in excess of one million people all of a sudden appear in the population in Australia. So there will be impacts particularly on our age structure. Net overseas migration helps keep uh, – helps um, – Minimise the adverse impacts of an age, a structurally aging population. So it will be smaller, poorer, and older, and whiter potentially. Right. Potentially, I don't think I could get any smaller, poorer, <laughs> whiter, or older. Well, we're, <laughs> we're not all you. <laughs> oh, really? I've always had that problem with empathy. <laughs> um, and and do you know what? We've got we've got a census next year, twenty 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 one. And now more than ever. That's another digital triumph like the last one. Well, we're going to – oh, look, don't even get me started on that. That's a sore point, all right? (laughs) We won't go there. But now – and we do need it to be digital. We need it to be online because of COVID, right? Mm, Absolutely. Um, But we need the data. We need – we'll need that data um, to to really gauge the true impact of COVID. It's going to be, as I said, slow burn. This is going to hurt us demographically for some time and in addition to be older, whiter um, and uh, poorer um, and smaller, um, we're, we're going to, I fear, see inequality increase. Not just – I fear that it's going to deepen and and the gulf widen, if you like. It's going to be more of a stubborn problem to address later on. And if I may go back to this issue of, you know, the three Ps, what is it? Population, productivity and participation. Um, gov- successive governments have hailed the un- so-called untapped resource of ladies uh, to in the paid, in paid work, right? We've not seen any earnest or substantive um, uh, measures to help support families, particularly women, who have been hardest hit in this process. Um, and I fear that we're we're going to see gender equality go backwards. Meanwhile, our our um, our socioeconomic well being could could decline for the first time. You know, there's there's so much at stake here. This this stuff keeps me awake at night. But and at on same- that cheery note, <laughs> now look, we're, we do actually have to get going. But Miranda, I'd like to just give you a, uh, a chance to respond just on 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 that demographic point and about what you think in terms of the economic implications. Yeah, thanks. Uh, look, I was thinking both about what Maria was saying about uh, public versus private driven recovery. Uh, and then the de- the demography and the aging population and the lower fertility rate and of course the thing that I had called out as missing in the budget is a public investment in 
our future, you know, the young children's human capital yes. Uh, yes. and in women's human capital. So mm. that public investment would be by permitting women to actually leverage their skills in the labour market. Mm. Um, so there, there's been this sort of lack of investment in childcare and uh, I'd have to say it, it must be ideological, really. Uh, I, I can't really yeah. see... There's no economic well, case uh, for not doing more investment. And, in fact, there's a very substantial demographic case that as we have this ageing population, we need to expand our use of the um, the, the potential workforce uh, of, of women in the market and stop specialising so much in kind of home-delivered care for a much smaller number of children. We need to get those human resources out into the market. So that's that's disappointing in the budget, both in the short term and with that longer term demographic issue. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And when I said before that uh, it was a budget that hadn't created lots of uh, fights or, or specific <laughs> groups of losers, it has, on, on, on the other hand, I think you could say simply missed the mark in some areas. You know, there were opportunities to do things on childcare, on women's participation, mm-hmm. those two issues very closely re- closely related um, where that hasn't happened. And, of course, as I've written about today, a completely missed opportunity really to rejig the economy, to use the crisis and to use this extraordinary moment of cheap money and state intervention to drive some kind of uh, restructuring of the economy. Mm. We know that the Australian economy needs to uh, get greener and cleaner Mm -hmm. for the 21st century. This was an opportunity to do that. And, of course, social housing, as we've mentioned, there are are a lot of ways. There are some good things in this budget, I think it has to be said. Mm. Uh, And there has been some real, uh, I think, uh, you know, creative thinking gone into some aspects of it. But it is uh, also a document that is... um, that does have some holes in it and some of those blind spots are no doubt ideological. Uh, that's my two cents worth on that. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for being with us today. Thanks, Maria, for being here again, as Pleasure. always. And to Liz, Liz Allen, thank you. I really love coming back and uh, I'll always see happy you again. at the barbecue. <laughs> always sausages. Yeah, always sausages. And thank you, Miranda Stewart. Yeah, no, thanks. And uh, it would have been nice to be able to be face to face with you all, but uh, thank you from lockdown in Melbourne. Well, let's hope that situation changes soon. As as we record this, the the fourteen day average has dropped below ten. So let's hope that uh, it continues on its merry way, and that uh, that situation in Victoria can can change very very soon indeed. That's your lot for Democracy Sausage Extra this week, a special post-budget discussion that we've had. We'll be back with the regular Democracy Sausage podcast next Monday. Until then, bye for now. 